Well, good morning. We're glad that you are with us, whether you are joining us here in person or you're joining us online. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Central. And I'm glad you're with us this morning as we continue uh, in week two of this series where we are looking at forgiveness. And you'd probably think that forgiveness, which is such a basic, fundamental idea, would be an easy thing to construct a message about. I mean, our daughter is 20 months old, um, and she's already learning about forgiveness. She's learning to say, I'm sorry. And, like, when I'm on the floor playing with her and I get up, I tend to, like, make some, like, groaning, moaning sounds as I get off the floor. And then she gets up and she makes those same sounds in, like, a mockery. Uh, and I don't think that's right. And so we're teaching her, look, Nora, you've got to learn about forgiveness. But the forgiveness is one of those things, one of those basic things. But whether you're someone who has grown up in church, you've never missed a Sunday, you know about forgiveness. Or maybe you're someone who's sitting here today or watching online, this is your first time you've ever been in a church or watched a church service. You wouldn't consider yourself someone of faith. But I bet you understand forgiveness as well. Uh, there's the old adage that you can either be right or be in relationship. I mean, if you want to be in a relationship, you're going to have to give up the right to always be right. And don't look at someone right now. Don't look at them. Wait till you're driving home. But I think forgiveness is a lot like that. That if you want to live in relationship, if you want to have healthy relationships in your life, you have to understand forgiveness. And so you would think it would be an easy thing to talk about, but it was a struggle this week because it's so basic. It's like, yeah, we are pro-forgiveness Let's get Enosh and the band back up here and we'll go home. But I want to spend some time thinking about this most basic, one of the most fundamental ways that, that we know to exist together today and really maybe think about the why a little bit more. For me, when I was growing up uh, in school, in elementary school, I kept time a little bit differently than most students may have. Whereas, you know, you'd probably keep time, okay, it's math, and, and now it's science, and now it's social studies, or it's, you know, 8 a.m., and now it's 9 a.m., and now it's 10 p.m., 10 a.m., I don't know if you're on Zoom, maybe it's 10 p.m. For me, when I was a student, time all revolved around when is gym class and when is recess. And so time either counted up till recess or down till gym class because that was the time for me when I could get out of my desk and I could run and I could play and, and, and it was just everything for me. I came alive in those times. The opposite to that was a girl in my class in fourth grade named Allison who hated gym class. She would have loved for nothing more than the gymnasium to burn down and we never had to go to gym class again. Maybe some of you uh, say Allison is, is my people. That's the, I, I can relate to that. But anyway, at one time in, in fourth grade, my, friend, my best friend growing up, David, was finally in class with me. We had never been in class together, and so we were finally in class together, and that was a lot of fun. But on this particular day, we were in gym class together. And at the end, towards the end of class, my gym teacher said those famous words, all right, it's time for dodgeball. And I mean... It doesn't get any better than gym class and dodgeball in fourth grade for Tyler. My eyes got big and I got excited. And we were playing dodgeball. And at one point in the game, I saw David on the other side of the gym who was on the other team. And he was looking straight ahead. So he didn't see me coming from this angle. And I had a ball and I, I got, oh, it was, I was excited. I was going to be able to light David up with this ball. And so I kind of aimed at him and I reared back and I threw that ball as hard as I could at David. 
And the minute that ball left my fingertips, David bent down to grab a ball that was coming towards him, revealing, standing right behind David against the wall, was Allison. And I probably don't have to finish this story for you to know how this goes, because I knew the minute the ball left my fingertips where that ball was headed, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. I think I chased after the ball like I was going to be able to catch it mid-flight to stop the ball from doing what I knew it was going to do. And sure enough, it flew across that gym, smashing right into Allison's face. And I tell you that story because I think we all can understand on some level. We all can relate, maybe not dodgeball, but to a moment where we did something or we said something. And the moment that thing happened or the moment those words left our lips, we wish that we could bring them back and take them back. Because we recognize that the things we say or the things we do are going to have this impact on that person. It's going to possibly even change the nature of that relationship in some way. Maybe you can identify more with Allison. That there has been something that's been said or done to you that had an impact. That has caused pain or hurt in your life. See, we all understand forgiveness. We all have had moments in our lives where we have had to forgive or offer forgiveness or ask for forgiveness. And this series and this sermon isn't a cure-all. Where at the end of today or at the end of the series, you're going to be able to go into your relationships and there's never going to be tension or conflict or all the things are going to be resolved. Because I think we like life to look easy and clean and quick. Forgiveness, like life, isn't easy and clean and quick, but it's messy and slow, complex and costly. And so I want to spend some time this morning thinking about forgiveness and thinking maybe a little bit more about the why of forgiveness for something that's so basic, for something that we all seem to have a handle and an understanding on. What else is happening with this idea? We're going to spend some time today looking at some verses in the book of Colossians. It's really a letter uh, that's found in the New Testament. And it's kind of a unique letter. Uh, It's written by Paul, and that doesn't make it unique, because the Apostle Paul really writes most of the letters that we find in the New Testament. So that doesn't make it unique. And Paul actually writes this from prison. But even that doesn't make this unique. There are other letters that Paul writes from prison. But what makes this letter to the church in Colossae unique is that Paul's never been there. This is a church that he's never met. A lot of the churches that Paul writes to, Paul has visited, he's helped get those churches started, and then he's writing later on to check back in on how things are going, or he's heard things about them, and so he's, he's kind of correcting some things or offering some guidance. But this church he's never visited, he's never been to, but he knows people who have and they're reporting to them, and Paul is writing to this church for a couple reasons. This is, this is a young and a new church. These Jesus followers in this community are, are, are baby Jesus followers. They're just kind of getting their legs underneath them and figuring these things out. And so Paul writes to encourage them, but also to address some pressures that they're experiencing, some temptations that they're experiencing to turn back from this Jesus way of life to what they know, to what they grew up with, to what they're comfortable with. And and specifically, we're going to spend some time in Colossians chapter 3. And that chapter specifically, 
Paul is talking about how you live together, how as a Jesus community, what it looks like to live and function with unity. And this is a hard word for this church in Colossae to hear. Because what Paul is doing is he's taking one of the most basic, fundamental Roman institutions, the household, and Paul is completely reshaping it in Jesus. He's saying, these are the things that you've known, and this is the the, the order and structure of, of what you've seen in the past. This is how you've experienced and grown up. But now I'm telling you that with Jesus, it's going to be all different. In Jesus, it takes what you've known and how you've lived, and it flips it upside down. In fact, in verse 11, the verse before we're going to jump in, it's that famous verse where Paul writes that there's no longer any Greek or Jew, slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised, but Christ is all and is in all. And those might just sound like words for us. But for this early church who has organized their lives and structured their lives in a certain way with certain groups, uh, avoiding certain people and spending all their time with other people, this is a hard message where Paul is taking everything that they have known, reordering it and flipping it on its head. And so we're going to jump in just for a few verses. This is Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. It says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. So what's happening here? And I think for us to understand forgiveness in maybe a new way, we need to take a step back from that and see this in light of the the context of what Paul is trying to say overall. So we're going to pause on forgiveness and we'll come back to that in just a minute. But I said that Paul wrote to kind of address some pressures that this church was facing. Uh, One of those pressures was for the Jewish Christian community. And in their new faith, they were trying to enforce on the non-Jewish Christian community all of the laws of the Torah. And so they were trying to enforce uh, a kosher diet and observing certain days and, and even circumcision. The second pressure was really more focused on the non-Jewish, the the Gentile Christian group. And they had grown up in this way uh, where they had had been uh, influenced by Greek and Roman culture. And so they had grown up with all of these various gods who would govern over er certain areas of life. Like, for instance, the god Hermes was the god of money, and Aphrodite was the god of sex, and Apollo was the god of music. And so they had all of these gods that would give direction for certain areas of life. And their temptation was to see Jesus as just another one of these gods that they would worship alongside all of those other gods. And this concerned Paul. Because for Paul, to compromise in any one of those ways was to not understand and live into who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. To Paul, there was no settling for anything less than the real thing. Uh, My first job out of college was I worked in the admissions office at Olivet. 
And one of the guys I worked with was a guy named Brian. And Brian had what you'd probably call severe loyalty to certain brands. The brands I remember that Brian was, was very loyal to was Jif Peanut Butter and Tide Detergent. For Brian, nothing compared to Jif Peanut Butter and Tide Detergent. So don't bring that off-brand stuff in here. Don't try to give him not Jif Peanut Butter, because he'll know, he said. He'll know it's not as flavorful, it's not as creamy, everything, it's just not the same. The problem for Brian was that he married someone who was more thrifty. And over time, as she was the one that was doing most of the shopping in this phase of their life, she got tired of spending extra money on Jif Peanut Butter and Tide Detergent. And so what she would do is she would buy off-brand peanut butter and off-brand detergent. And then when she would get home, she would take that peanut butter and put it in a Jif container and pour the non-Tide detergent into the Tide detergent container. And here's the worst part for Brian. He never knew. For years, he was eating off-brand peanut butter and washing his clothes with off-brand detergent. And he didn't know. He had staked himself on, I could smell it from a mile away. And he had no idea. He had no idea that he was settling for something that wasn't the real thing. And that's kind of what Paul is getting to here. Because for Paul, uh, the life, death, and, and resurrection of Jesus, that changes and transforms everything. That no part of the human existence remains untouched by the loving and liberating rule of Jesus. But it would change everything. If Paul were writing to us today, one of the things he might say is, this faith isn't just about coming to church on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening, but this faith should permeate and be, and be woven into every area of your life. The way you work, the way you think, the way you talk, the way you save money, the way you spend money, the way you rest. Our social structures, our power dynamics, how we love our neighbor and how we answer the question, who is my neighbor? All falls under this person and, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I want to come back to that second pressure real quick. Again, there was a strong Greco-Roman influence in this early church. And, and this ancient culture uh, was incredibly religious. But very rarely did their religious practices actually cast any moral influence over their daily lives. In essence, what that means is they spent a lot of time in their religious practices talking and thinking and reflecting. They would have debates on certain things. But the things they would talk about and think about rarely, if ever, actually changed the way they lived and loved and interacted with people. And see, for Paul, it's quite the opposite. Because Paul thinks, well, you know, what good is faith if it's not going to transform and change every area of your life? For, for Paul, faith had to have its fingerprints on everything we did, everything, the way we love and the way we interacted. For Paul, our faith wasn't even just about what happens to us when we die. But for Paul, our faith should transform the way we live here and now. Reverend William Barber says that prophets believe that what they can proclaim on any given day can be transformed into real action. Can be transformed into real action. And that's what Paul is saying in essence. That's not just what we think or what we want, but what we do. 
And so as we look at this, for Paul, the practices then are very important as they pertain to the people we are becoming. So when we look at forgiveness, forgiveness then is not just something we do, but forgiveness fuels formation. Forgiveness fuels formation. What I mean by that is forgiveness, like all of our habits, have a profound impact on the people we are becoming. That forgiveness is not just something we do, but it's a people we are becoming. Forgiveness fuels formation. And as I was wrestling with that this week, I began to ask myself, now, is it that forgiveness fuels formation, or is it that formation fuels forgiveness? I mean, we could could reason that it's who we are then that determines what we do. The problem with that is when it comes to formation, we don't just decide who we want to be, get it all together, and then start living out of that. But formation is constant and ongoing. It's never-ending. I talk about formation a lot because I think it's important for us as Jesus followers because formation is never stagnant. It's always moving. We are at any moment of any day either being formed into greater Christ-likeness or away from it. And so then this becomes incredibly important. Our formation is not just what we want or what we think, but ultimately we are people based on what we do. We are, our formation is happening based on our actions. And and you know this to be true outside of realms of faith. Let me give you some examples. I, I got a call this week. I hadn't been to the doctor in a long time. So I went to the doctor and they wanted to do blood work. And so I got a call this week after my blood work results came back. And they said, you know what, everything looks pretty good. Uh, your cholesterol is a little bit high. So we'd like you to cut back on butter and salt and eggs and bacon and red meat. And I'm, what's, what's left? And they said, I want you to eat more fruits and veggies. Okay. I know, I I have the knowledge that fruits and veggies, I should eat more leafy greens, I know that that is good for me. But knowing that doesn't translate necessarily to me eating healthier. Just like I know that I should exercise, I should go for a walk, I should go for a run, I should do some push-ups. I know that exercise is good for my body. But knowing that doesn't necessarily translate to a change in behavior. And why that's important is because there are times in our life, many times in our life, where we don't feel like doing the things that form us into followers of Christ. Forgiveness, like a lot of disciplines, is not a fun thing to partake in in the moment. And I think Paul understood this. Because if we look at this chapter, Paul uses language of great intentionality. He says things like, rid yourself, and put on, bear with one another, and clothe yourselves. I mean, those are, those are words of intention. You all who are here are clothed, and we are thankful. You who are watching at home, I don't know, more power to you. <laughs> but you who are here are clothed. And what happened is you didn't just wake up and stumble into your clothes. You didn't stumble and just fall into being dressed. But you, this morning, had to be intentional about clothing yourselves. 
It's as if Paul is reminding us that this formation takes focus and intentionality. That we don't just stumble into being a follower of Christ. If I can be honest, there are moments, probably more than I care to share, where when it comes to forgiveness, I don't really feel like offering forgiveness. Whether it's with my wife Lauren or with a friend or or someone maybe has said something or done something that, that hurt me or caused me pain. And there are moments when... There's something that's, that's deep and dark inside of me that almost likes the idea that someone's wronged me because then I, I have some kind of power over them. Maybe I can remind them of that down the road and, I, and I, can, I can leverage what they did to get something that I want in return. But in that practice of forgiveness, I give up my power over the people who wronged me or hurt me. I level the playing field. And for Paul, that's incredibly important if this church was going to understand and know how to live this Jesus way of life, to live together. In fact, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Some of you may may know this story. Uh, On on October 2nd, 2016, 32-year-old milk delivery driver Charles Roberts in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, drove into this Amish community, walked into a small Amish school and open-fired, killing five young girls and injuring five others. It was this horrible, disgusting, tragic event. And, And it captured the national news. And as this story started to unfold, what really started to gain attention, even maybe more so than this horrific act, was the response. Because this Amish community, as they began to heal from this horror, said, we need to go to the Roberts family and make sure that they know that we are forgiving them. One of the the reporters who was following, and I think this was profound, said, this wasn't a rational decision by this community. It's not like they had a town hall and they gathered together and said, okay, what what are we going to do now? But he said this forgiveness, this response came from the fact that this was woven into the DNA of who they were. I thought, wow, how in the world? I mean, they had to be so angry. They had to be so hurt. They couldn't have felt like offering that forgiveness. And as that story continued, they interviewed and asked some of these Amish folks from this community some some of the questions, some of these very questions. And and their responses blow me away. Because they they began to say things like, yeah, this forgiveness isn't a a one-time thing. It's not a one-and-done deal. But every day... We have to learn and struggle to forgive. As they walked to the Roberts family, they walked arm in arm, and it's almost as if they were marching, marching into battle. But their battle wasn't revenge or retribution. Their battle was forgiveness. And they said, every morning when we wake up, we feel all of the emotions, anger, grief, pain. 
And every morning when we wake up, in those waking moments of the morning, we have to decide intentionally that we are going to forgive because it's who we are. It's almost as if you could hear them saying, every morning when we wake up, we have to decide that we are going to clothe ourselves in forgiveness. As I talk about forgiveness fueling formation, I I know we like our sermons to kind of have a, a point that you're supposed to take this week and you're supposed to do this one thing. And I don't know if this is that kind of sermon. Because in this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, this wasn't for some of them. This wasn't for the select few that maybe were struggling with forgiveness. But this letter was for all of them. And not just all of them individually, but all of them collectively. That what Paul is calling them to do is to be a people who don't just forgive because there's nothing better to do, but they forgive because it's who they are. And so I think our response to this sermon takes some reflection. It takes some imagination for what does that look like? How does that shape who we are as a people? I think one of the things we get held up on in forgiveness is we often view forgiveness like a transaction. Like if you're an accountant and you've got to reconcile the two sides of the ledger so everything everything works out in the end. But forgiveness is not transactional. Forgiveness is relational. I think some of our struggle with that is I think we view the cross as some transaction. But the cross is not a transaction. The cross is the moment where the God of the world absorbed all of the darkness and pain and brokenness and sin of the world and yet responded with loving forgiveness. And if that's our sign, if that's our anchor, if that's where we are moving... And we have to wrestle with what does it mean to be a people who forgive, not out of obligation, not out of just doing something, but out of this overflow because it's who we are becoming. We're going to sing this song that speaks about the great love of God. Because that's how Paul kind of wraps us up. He says, above all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's out of the gracious and great love of God that God forgave and that we too can be a people who forgive. Forgiveness fuels formation.